The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Now Moses used to take the tent and and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people, And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight and I, and I I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut from yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. 
So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, let us bow our heads. Let's pray together before we turn to that word. Father God, thank you that we've seen what it's like to have an encounter with you. And we pray in your mercy, might that be each of our experiences this morning. Might we tremble before you. And yet, might our hearts be filled with joy. And our lives be forever changed, we ask. Amen. Well, it is a real pleasure to be back. uh, And uh, fond memories uh, coming back here uh, and seeing old faces uh, that I remember well. So so it really is a delight. let me ask you, what, what would be a game changer for you? I mean, what would really change your life today? What, what do you think it would take for that to happen? Uh, several months back, I was looking at a news app on my phone and came across an article in the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention. Its headline was, Is This It? And it documented the experience of a number of people who'd made it to the very top of their profession. People like Andy Dunn. Andy Dunn sold his uh, clothing retailer, Bonobos, to Walmart for a whopping $310 million. The world looked in, in awe, at Andy Dunn. But Andy Dunn recalled that the joy and achievement that he initially experienced turned out to be, in his words, illusory. Or or Steve Babcock. Steve Babcock moved from a small firm in Colorado to a huge firm in New York City. He he went from managing just 50 people in Colorado to, to more than 200 members of staff in New York. But according to Babcock, it left him feeling utterly empty feeling a shell of his former self. Getting what we want often doesn't live up to its billing. So so what is it that you want this morning? What would make the difference for you in your life? I'm guessing that many of us here this morning are Christians. I, I know a number of you aren't. But I suspect even if you're not a Christian... The fact that you're here probably means that you're hoping for the same thing as the Christians who are here. You're hoping that you might get an experience of God. You're not looking for religion, you're not looking for ritual, but you're looking for a real meeting with God in an awe-inspiring, life-transforming, unforgettable way. That would make all the difference for you in your life. That that would be a game changer for you. 
Well, today we're going to be thinking about exactly that. Uh, we're in the book of Exodus. Now, now, the book of Exodus, it is the second book in the Bible. And it's all about how the, the promises that God made in the first book, the, the book of Genesis, it's all about how those promises came to be fulfilled. You see, back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God made some incredible promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that even though he and his wife were very old and could not have children, he promised that Abraham would become a great people. He promised Abraham that he would live in a promised place, the land of Canaan. And here's the big one. God promised Abraham his presence. The God himself would live with Abraham and his descendants forever. The three Ps. The promise of a people, a place, and God's presence. But by the end of the book of Genesis, those promises look like they're in tatters. Abraham's family is pretty big by the end of Genesis. It's 70 people. But they're not more numerous than the stars in the sky like God had promised him. And they're living in Egypt, not in Canaan. So so they're not in the promised place. And God, at the end of Genesis, he's not living among them. Instead, they, they are living in Egypt under the shadow of the pyramids and Egypt's idols. And so, you see... The book of Exodus is all about how God fulfills those promises that he'd left unfulfilled. So at the start of the book, in Genesis chapter 1, we we find that Israel has grown to more than 2 million people. That's the promise of a people. By the end of chapter 14, God has miraculously rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them towards the promised land. That's the promise of a place. And so the next step for God is to establish his permanent presence with his people. That is promise number three. And as we get to to Exodus chapter 33, that promise is already at hand. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's in the cloud of God's presence. He is receiving God's plans for the tabernacle, the place where God would permanently dwell with his people Israel. But, and we didn't have time to read this, while all that was going on up on top of Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 32, we read that the people back down the bottom of the mountain in the camp, they were getting impatient. And they managed to convince their priest, Aaron, to to create a golden calf for them to bow down and worship. And the Lord has seen what has been happening, and he tells Moses... I'm going to have to destroy the people. But Moses, in chapter 32, he steps in. He offers to be punished in the people's place. He offers to be blotted out of God's book of life. And so God turns back his anger. There's just one problem. God's presence. You see... The people need God's presence to lead and to guide them. But because of their sin, God's presence is a profound danger to them. Which brings us to our first point this morning is this. 
the danger of God's presence. Uh, Chapter 33, it starts well. The the Lord says to Moses, uh, get up, leave. I'm about to fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 1. You already had the people, now I'm going to give you the place. I'm going to send my angel with you, verse 2, who will give you military supremacy. The angel of the Lord is like the celestial equivalent of an Apache attack helicopter going with them, okay? They're going to beat everyone in their path. And he says, the place, the place is going to be far better than you can possibly imagine. Let me tell you what a place is going to be like. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. You'll have everything you need to be happy, to be safe, to be fruitful, to be fulfilled. It will be amazing. There is just one thing. Look at verse 3. I will not go with you. Shock. Why? Well, because they are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you along the way. This language of being stiff-necked, it speaks of the effect of idolatry. It was used back in chapter 32, verse 9. What's an idol? Well, we tend to think of idols as always being bad things. But, But idols are actually good things that we have made into God things. An idol is anything that we seek to derive meaning and life and joy from instead of seeking those things in God himself. For some of us, our idol will be a person. Our boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, children, grandchildren. For others, it's our work. That's where we seek to find our identity, our sense of self-worth. For others, our idol is popularity. We feel good when people approve of us, when they accept us, when they think well of us. For others of us, our idol is our bank balance. That's what we look to to provide security. Whatever it is, it draws us away from God. Uh, We've got a dog at home. I think we've got a... there, There she is, Maisie the dog, our little cockapoo. Now, Maisie... She is very sweet in lots and lots of ways. But if you take her out for a walk and she comes across someone's discarded takeaway, it doesn't matter what she's doing, she will run straight for that takeaway, no matter how old it is, and she will gobble it up entirely. Now, it's a bit like that with us and idols. They capture our attention. Once we've seen them, we cannot stop looking for them, and we cannot stop going after them, and we will do that relentlessly. We become stiff-necked, refusing to go God's way because we hanker after God's substitutes. And that has consequences. Look at verse 3 with me. When God says in verse 3, I might destroy you, He's not questioning his own self-control. He's not saying, oh, if you do that, I might suddenly lose my temper and have to destroy you. No, this is a warning. If I go with you, a sinful people, and you rebel again, then I will have to destroy you. You see, the Lord and sinful people, they are incompatible. 
They're like fire and wood. If you have them together, the wood will get burnt up every single time. They cannot coexist. Nor can God and sinful humanity coexist. Anything impure that comes into contact with God will get burnt up. So it's better if I don't go with you, God says. Now let me ask you, how would you have responded to God's offer in verse 3? Don't answer that too quickly. Let me rephrase that question for you today. God says to you today, I'm going to give you absolutely everything you dream of. You are going to have a beautiful five-bed house right on the edge of Sefton Park. You're going to have 2.4 children. They're all going to be well-behaved. Everyone at Egbeth is going to admire how well-behaved your children are. You're going to have an amazing spouse. You will have an incredible garden. You'll have loads of room for the kids to play in. You'll have a hammock to rest in at the end of your work day. What's more, the sun will always, always shine, and Liverpool Football Club will always, always win the Premier League. And then you're going to love your job. It's going to be so fulfilling. Everything you turn your hand to is going to succeed. There's just one thing. You won't need to worry about me anymore. No need to go to church. No need to give your money to gospel purposes. No need to have quiet times. No need to pray anymore. How would you respond? Let's be blunt. That is what the average person here in Liverpool dreams of. All of God's blessings, but none of God. All his gifts, but none of his demands. And if we're honest, if we're really honest, isn't that what we sometimes hunger for, even as Christians? The forgiveness of God, but not his demands. The health and happiness and security that God offers, but not his inconvenient presence in our lives. We'll take a look at how the Israelites respond here. They mourn. They're distressed, verse 4. Devastated, because they cannot imagine a future without God. That's very challenging, isn't it? And notice how they take off their ornaments. Why do they do that? Well, jewellery was really significant back in those times. And it was symbolic. You see, they didn't have bank accounts. There was no Nat West and Barclays. And so people stored up their wealth in their jewellery, in their rings, in their earrings, in their necklaces. These were the very ornaments that back in chapter 32, Aaron had taken from them and created an idol out of. Now in chapter 33, they take off the jewellery. It's incredibly symbolic. They, they take off their bank accounts, and then they set them down at God's feet, and they say, we want to commit our treasure to you now, Lord. No longer to idols. Which means... 
They recognise their need for God's presence, which brings us to our second point today. Now, verses 7 to 11, they've, they've puzzled Bible commentators for centuries. You see, they describe Moses heading outside the camp to a tent he's pitched, which he called the Tent of Meeting. Now, that's the same name as the tabernacle, which hadn't yet been built because of the Israelites' rebellion. So we need to ask, well, what's going on here? I think what's going on is that there was a famine of God's presence. The Lord had to keep his distance for the people's own safety. But Moses was determined, he was absolutely resolved to do whatever it took to get close to God. If it meant leaving the camp, leaving the comfort of his home, leaving the security of his people, leaving the intimacy of his family, he was fine with that. He'd do it. Whatever it took to get close to God, he would make it happen anything. Now the way that we if we're Christians experience the presence of God today is very different. We'll come back to that in just a moment. There is a sense in which every Christian experiences something of what Moses and the people were going through in chapter 33. Every Christian sometimes feels spiritually dry. You know what I mean, don't you? We attend church here on a Sunday. And we walk out that door and we just think, yeah. We open our Bibles to have a quiet time. And we look at it and it just feels like words on a page. We just feel like we're going through the motions. And when that happens, I think we face two temptations. One is to get really worried about it. This shouldn't be happening. This isn't what a Christian should be like. Perhaps I'm not a Christian. But be careful there. The very fact that you are uncomfortable is almost certainly a sign that you are a Christian. I mean, if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't really worry about that, would you? But secondly, when we're spiritually dry, we can be tempted to give up. What's the point? What, what is the point of reading my Bible and praying? I get nothing out of it. Might as well just watch Netflix. Well, no. No. It is an inevitable part of the Christian life to feel spiritually dry. It's inevitable to feel that God is distant sometimes. We all go through seasons of that. Some of us go through years of feeling that way. But the answer is never to give up. It is always to lean in. To go outside the camp of our spiritual dryness. To seek out God by praying more. By meditating on his word more. By doing whatever it takes to experience God's presence. To go deeper with God. But what exactly is God's presence here? Take a look at verse 11. We read, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the NIV here. We read that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Face to face. Now that's so interesting. A little later on in verses 12 to 16, Moses pleads with God for his presence to go with the people. 
And the word used there for presence, it is the same Hebrew word as is translated face here in verse 11. Do you get what's going on? The significance of God's face. You know, I I think it's much easier for me to preach this today, here in 2023, than it would have been back in 2019. Because COVID, COVID has taught us something about the significance of face-to-face meetings, hasn't it? Yes, during during lockdown, phone and email and Zoom, they they were useful, weren't they? they? They enabled us to stay in touch with people, but they were incredibly limited. Imagine... Imagine you're single and you're starting a new relationship with a guy or a girl. You may well start to talk online with them. But very, very quickly, you will want to move to dating that person in person. Why? Because that is how you get to know someone. Not simply knowing things about them, like you can learn on a Christian dating website, but knowing them personally, knowing them relationally. It is only when we are face-to-face with someone, when you can see their lips move, when you can see their facial expression, when you can see their emotions, it's only then that you really get to know them. And it's only when you're face-to-face with another person that that person begins to change you. We've all heard the saying, bad company breeds bad character, haven't we? It's true. That's why those of us who are parents, we long for our children to find a good crowd to hang out with at school, because we know that if they don't, it will impact their behavior. And it works both ways. I mean, we know the change that takes place when a friend starts to date someone new. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes you see them, they just started dating this person, their face lights up, they're full of joy and generosity. But sometimes it's toxic. Being face-to-face with someone, it inevitably transforms you, inevitably, either for good or for ill. And you see, that, that is why Moses longs to be face-to-face with God. He wants to know God, to be transformed by God for good. And my question for you this morning is, do you feel the same way? Take a look at the conversation that takes place between Moses and the Lord in verses 12 to 16. Moses says, verse 13, teach me your ways. I want to know you. Not simply know things about you, not simply know theology, but know you, Lord. And God replies, my presence, that is my face, will go with you. And you read that and you think, great, yes, this is a request answered with a yes. This is a a prayer answered. That's exactly what Moses wants. But look at how Moses responds. Verse 15, if your presence, your face does not go with us, do not send us. What's going on here? God says he's going to go with Moses, and now Moses complains that he won't go with him. Why? Well, the clue 
is in the us of verse 15. You see, in the original, the you in verse 14 is singular. The Lord is saying that he will go with Moses, but he will only go with Moses, not with the whole people. And Moses says, no, Lord, that is not enough. We all need you to go with us. Moses is hungering after God's presence, God's face, not just for himself, but for all the people. And look at the reason, verse 16. Because what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Why do you long for a deeper experience of the relational presence of God in your life? Because you hope it will make things better? Because you hope it will bring contentment in your life? Well, look at how different Moses' reason is here. A sermon by Tim Keller helped me to see this is incredible. Moses wanted God's presence not primarily for himself, but for the sake of others. He wants God to go with the Israelites so that the Israelites will be distinctive, so that they will stick out, so that the watching world will see the incredible transformation in their lives and will turn to God themselves. Those of us here this morning who are parents, we can probably relate to this. We want the best for our kids, don't we? Which often means that we want to live in a nice neighborhood. We want them to go to a good school. We want them to have nice friends. We want them them to have good things like nice toys, nice clothes. We want them to enjoy pastimes, to play football, to enjoy music and art. We we want them to enjoy church, to to be at a church where they're well looked after, with, with kids their own age. Why do we want those things? Because we want the best for them. We want them to grow up to be happy, flourishing Christians. But do you know what your kids need more than anything else? They need you, mum and dad, to hunger after God's presence in your life. To pursue it. To cry out with Moses, verse 15, if you don't go with us, we won't go. Listen, because I know that I really need to hear this myself. That, that thing, you hungering after the presence of God will have a more profound and a more lasting effect on your children than living in water or wherever you want to live. It will have a more profound effect than than sending your child to the school that everyone else wants to send their child to. What they need more than anything else is for you and I to hunger after God's presence in our lives, to show them metaphorically what Moses shows the Israelites at the end of chapter 34, which we're not going to get to. We need to show that we've encountered God's radiant face. Radiant ourselves because we've been in his presence. You know, the same is true for your non-Christian friends and colleagues and neighbours. 
They don't need you to have amazing answers to all of those hard questions about God, science, and suffering. No, they need to see the impact of God's presence on your life. They need to see, verse 16, that you are distinct, that your face is radiant with God's presence, gloriously transformed. And is that what they see in you as you walk into the office? or to the school gate tomorrow morning. So finally, how do we pursue this? How do we get God's presence in our lives? A few things for us to see as we wrap up. Firstly, notice the need for a mediator. What is the reason that the Lord agrees to go with the Israelites? Well, verse 17, it is because the Lord is pleased with their mediator, with Moses. Secondly, look at what the Lord does for Moses. Moses asked to see God's glory, verse 18. And what does God do? Verse 19. He he promises to cause all his goodness to pass in front of Moses. Now that happens in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 34. Moses is back up Mount Sinai. He's uh, carrying the two stone tablets to replace the tablets that were destroyed in chapter 32. Uh, Moses is asked to see God's glory. To see it, notice he asked to see it, but what does he get? Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 34. He gets God's voice. As Tim Chester puts it, instead of a description of the way God looks, Moses gets a description of the way God is. That is what it means for God's goodness to pass in front of Moses. He hears God's name, which means he hears God's character and his attributes. Verse 8, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Friends, this is how we meet with God. This is how we experience him face to face. When we hear his words and we grasp his goodness. And you know at the heart of God's goodness is a tension. It is an intriguing tension. You see, we've got it here in verse 6. The Lord who forgives is also a God who judges. He's a God we cannot live with because his justice will burn us up. But a God we cannot live without because we need his forgiveness and grace. How do we resolve that tension? How do we square that circle? Well, we need a mediator. We need a better Moses. The words spoken to Moses in verse 17, they are almost identical to what God said to Jesus at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see, Jesus came not simply to reveal God to us, but to be God with us. 
According to John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. Literally, that means he tabernacled among us. Jesus pitched his tent right in the center of our lives 2,000 years ago. And in Jesus, God's goodness has been supremely revealed. Listen to this. It's a few verses later in John's gospel. We read, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus brought God's goodness to us. He he brought God's grace, forgiveness for us sinners. But he brought God's truth, justice against every wrongdoing. Now how did he do it? Through the cross. It was there at the cross that sin was dealt with. As Jesus bore our sin in our place, on the cross, God's holy presence destroyed Jesus. Quite literally, Jesus, in his humanity, was burnt up in God's judgment. Why? So that God could live with us once more. you put your trust in that today? Have you laid down your treasures at Jesus' feet? Have you given your life to the one who was burnt up in your place? Well, if you have, it will make all the difference in your life. Let me tell you why. It means that you can be face to face with God once more. Knowing and being known like you have never been known before. It means as you go out from this place, from this room, he goes with you. And he has promised that he will never leave and will never ever forsake you. We experience that now in part. And we must pursue it, longing, longing to go deeper and deeper in the presence of God. That is part of what we do as we gather together to listen to God's word preached. And as we gather together to sing glorious truth from the depth of our souls, that is what we are doing. But we need to hunger after God's presence for us in Jesus. And one day we will experience it in full, in all its transforming glory. As we close, let me read some words from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I think these are probably my favourite words in the whole Bible. They speak of a time to come. Revelation 21 tells us that at that time, God will wipe every tear from our eyes, and we will suddenly have 20-20 vision. And we will see Jesus face to face, and we will experience fully his life-transforming presence. And listen to this. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, now we know in part, but one day we will know in full we will know and we will be fully known. Lord, in all the tragedy and the sadness and the sin and the brokenness of this life, it is hard to get 
our finite minds around that. But Lord, we long to experience your glorious transforming presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that on the cross you were burnt up in our place. You experienced the full fury of God's righteous judgment against us. So that when we stand in your presence, we will just experience the unimaginable glory. We will taste the goodness. And Lord, in your mercy, let us taste that now. Would we have the experience of Moses that our face would be radiant because here and now we've met with the Lord. Would we have that experience tomorrow morning when we get up and spend time with you? Would we have that experience when we walk through those deepest, darkest paths that that people can see you are with us. You have promised you will never leave nor forsake us. Help us, Lord, not just to know truth in our head, but experience in our hearts that you might truly be glorified that the watching world of Liverpool might see that we have been in your presence and that it is good. Amen.